Hello, and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. I'm one of your hosts, uh, Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. And I'm David the Skeptic. And uh, we have a great show lined up for you guys today. Uh, we actually have a special guest. Uh, special guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Lydia McGroup. I am a analytic philosopher, blogger, homeschooling mom. Um, my PhD is in English. Virtually all of my publications have been in philosophy with an emphasis on the theory of knowledge and probability theory. In the last couple of years, I've begun working in New Testament studies and uh, apologetics for quite some years, Christian apologetics. I have one book out called Hidden in Plain View, which provides evidence for the reliability of the Gospels from an argument known as the argument from undesigned coincidences. And that book and my work in apologetics are probably why I'm, I'm on this show. Um, I have a forthcoming book to be called The Mirror or the Mask, also on reliability of the Gospels. You can uh, go to my author page at lydiamcgrew.com, get a portal there to some of my blogs and a lot of my work that's available free online, and you can follow my public content on Facebook. You don't even have to be a Facebook friend to follow my public content. Very nice. Excellent. Yeah. And, uh, I'm glad you remembered the Facebook uh, plug there as well. So, yeah, we're thrilled to have Lydia. L uh, Lydia was someone that came recommended to me by my friend, uh, Dr. Tony Costa, or Tony Costa. Um, and he was sort of wanting Lydia to come on to talk about the Gospels reliability uh, issue as sort of a response to an earlier show we had with Mike Lacona, um, because Lydia has has some differences in that in that regard. Um, but yeah, so so let's let's get straight into it and, and start asking Lydia about her views on the Gospels and that sort of thing. So, Lydia, just sort of a general question: um, What genre would you say the Gospels are, and um, would you say that they compare they're comparable to other ancient literary works in that regards? I call the Gospels what the second century church father Justin Martyr called them. He called them the memoirs of the apostles, and I look at them somewhat as C.S. Lewis did in one of his essays when he was talking about the Gospel of John. He, he said, if you say the Gospels are legends or myths, I want to ask how many legends or myths you've ever read. And he said that if, if someone can read it and not see that it is intended to be realistic, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that it presents itself as historical, that person just hasn't learned to read. And he said, he even said, no doubt there may be errors, but what he was talking about was the, the general genre. So I approach the genre of the Gospels in that way, that there's, there's just this prima facie case when you read them, that they present themselves as generally biographical about Jesus, that they're giving us the history of Jesus and what he did and said and, and his uh, disciples and what they did and said during his ministry. So that's the way I approach it. Um, there might be some similarities to other works at the time, but I doubt there was a whole lot of influence. And so that's one reason why I don't emphasize, say, Greco-Roman biographies as if they were literary influences on the Gospels. I think that tends to um, make the process of, of deciding the Gospel genre an unnecessarily academic one, as though you know, you don't really understand even the prima facie genre of the Gospels unless you are a classicist or a historian. Whereas I think they present their prima facie genre pretty much on their face as as memoirs of Jesus. Interesting. All right, okay. I'll, I'll turn it over to David here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I'm going to I'm going to skip down the list to number seven just to to establish this uh, for the for the rest of the conversation. So, uh, do you do you think the gospels are without error? I, I, I there are words like inerrancy. Um, and infallibility and things like that, which I, I'm not sure are completely useful. But do you, do you think they're kind of perfect in a uh, magical gloss sense? God made sure that all of the details are right. Uh, are they, uh, or do they have some accidental human errors? Do they have some, any any legendary accretion at all? I mean, how do you, how do you view it that? So I understand that you're right. saying it's historical, but that's a different question than, you know, how authoritative as, as far as the details and, and possible errors are they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I do not identify myself as an inerrantist. Um, I think it's possible that there are some minor human errors there, just as there would be uh, or could be in extremely reliable witness sources. You could have uh, people who were testifying in some court case, whether a civil or a criminal court case, where you, you know, maybe you even knew these people personally and you were like, you know, if, if this, if Joe says something, that's a really, really good reason to think that it, that it happened. He's a good witness. Um, and I think that's what's true of the Gospels. But Joe would not necessarily in that case be infallible. Um, so while I do think that they are inspired, I do not have a highly detailed theory of inspiration. Um, and in fact, it seems to me at least possible that the Holy Spirit may have allowed some minor human errors to creep in because that actually gives them this this wonderful texture of real eyewitness testimony. Now, legendary accretion, however, is a different matter. Um, when we talk about legendary accretion, we're thinking more in terms of an entire incident that maybe somebody put in there that, you know, he just like picked up from somebody and, and he didn't really check it out. He didn't have uh, very good access to what really happened, or maybe he even knew that it wasn't true uh, and put it in there or knew at least that it probably wasn't true or that it was dubious or questionable or it should have known that. I don't think there's any legendary accretion in any of those senses. Where I see the possibility of a few minor or trivial errors would be in more of that forensic sense that somebody remembers as best he can. He's very close to the facts, but he maybe gets the day wrong on one thing and then he can be corrected on that. Um, That's actually very different from what we would call a legend. So that would be, that would be my answer to your question. I'm not an inerratist, but at the same time, I have an extremely high view of the, uh, shall we say, unqualified historical reliability of the gospels. So if if I can follow up just just slightly there, so are are you suggesting that God didn't play a what I would call a magical hand in preserving the facts here? That it's just a matter of people doing their best to recount events as they remember them, or is is there anything more going on here than that? Well, there could be something more going on here than that. Um, it it is very interesting, I would say, to find out just how reliable they are. And um, but that's something you discover, you know, sort of after the fact in a historical way, you say, well, that's that's really remarkable. Um, And there is a promise in John recorded 
uh, in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit will bring to their remembrance what Jesus has said unto them. But I would say that's a conclusion I would draw. I mean, you have to have reason to trust John's account in the first place anyway, otherwise your argument is circular there, that this is really what Jesus said. So that is not a presupposition of my inquiry, particularly not if I'm speaking to a skeptic. I'm never, never, never asking a skeptic to take it that the Holy Spirit was involved in the production of the Gospels at all. I myself believe he was to some extent involved, but I don't think that's necessary apologetically to have an extremely strong argument for uh, for the conclusion that the Christianity is true. It, it happens that when you discover just how reliable they are, you may say, that's pretty remarkable. I wonder if there was something more going on there than just ordinary uh, human testimony. But ordinary, extremely reliable human testimony is what you really need for the argument for Christianity. Just sort of uh, going back to question number three then, because you, you mentioned uh, some of the things in your answer to number seven there. Um, just to clarify, what position do you take on the, the dating and authorship of the, the four, four Gospels there? I think the Gospels were written by their traditionally ascribed authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The evidence for that seems to me quite strong from the patristic sources, the uh, church fathers and so forth. In classical circles, that level of evidence exceeds what we have for most ancient documents. So if these were any other documents, that would be accepted without question. Um, that these that these were written by these four guys. I also think it's significant that Mark and Luke were not even uh, allegedly of the twelve original disciples. So if you were going to fictionally ascribe something to somebody, I don't think you would pick those guys. Uh, as far as the dating, I think uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are usually called the Synoptic Gospels, were written before 70 A.D. and and possibly even quite a bit before. As for John, the only reason for thinking of it as later than, and the reason I picked 70, it's a convenient number because it's the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. Um, and the only reason for thinking of John as later is because the patristic evidence is that John wrote this when he was old, um, which would have, and that it was, they related to certain heresies and so forth, which there's some reason to think were prevalent later in the first century. Otherwise, the actual content of John is such that it could have been written prior to 70. In fact, it shows a very strong knowledge of Jerusalem, its physical structure, its customs and so forth, even before the fall of Jerusalem. So the evidence there is that it was definitely written by an eyewitness of many of the events, even if it was later in his life when it was written down, uh, perhaps in the 90s uh, AD. But that, that would be the latest that I would put any of them, and that only the Gospel of John, and only on the basis of that external evidence. Just a really quick follow-up uh, yeah. to that. What, why do you, I mean, you seem to be very certain about the patristic evidence, or at least very confident. But it seems to me most modern scholars don't agree that, uh, you know, we can be certain who wrote these books. Why is there such disagreement in scholarship? Some are saying, yeah, oh, absolutely. But others, in fact, possibly most are saying, oh, no, we, we can't know. Right. I mean, that's a very good question. Um, it's really hard sometimes to get evidence about who wrote ancient documents. Sometimes you only have something that's like hundreds uh, of years later. Uh, we have a chain of custody where you can take some of these things back. Um, and so, for example, Justin Martyr quotes 
all four of the Gospels. He, he does not name their authors. He calls them the memoirs of, of the apostles. He, he names um, he names Peter as being strongly involved with, and then gives a little snippet that is from the Gospel of Mark. And that's interesting because that fits with our later evidence. But, you know, Justin Martyr was born around the year 100. Um, so this, we've got stuff that by the standards of classical scholarship is extremely good. I think the there's really a double standard for the Gospels because uh, in the 19th century, the 1800s, there was a pretty strong realization that, you know, if these were uh, written relatively early and relatively close to the facts, then... Um, you know, we had to take them more seriously. And so I think there tends to be a sort of a bandwagon effect where the mere fact that something has been questioned then begets more questioning, which begets more questioning. It's almost like a it's like a cycle that goes on. And then other people come along and say, well, gee, you know, I can't be confident because there's all these people who question it. And it's when you kind of strip all of that away and you go back to the original thing and you say, well, let's compare this to our evidence for, you know, let's say Herodotus wrote his histories or something. Um it's it's extremely good, and you just have to sort of admit that, admit that up front. There's a hyper skepticism, I would say, with respect to with respect to the Gospels that is not applied to other documents. Okay, well, it seems though that a lot of that hyper skepticism is coming from other Christians. So it's not it's not the skeptical scholarship that's really some of it bringing is. up. Yes, yeah, some of it is, but I think it's important to realize that um, if somebody wants to get his credential, he's going to go to a, you know, a higher uh, credential type of school or type of university, and he's going to, um, you know, he's going to have to sort of prove his lack of bias. Um, and again, you know, it depends too on whom you you know, what you count as a Christian scholar. I saw someone refer to uh, James Dunn the other day as an evangelical, and I, I, my eyebrows went up. I, mean, I just don't think that most people would call James Dunn an evangelical. So, you know, our categories here are kind of interesting. But I think sometimes we find uh, scholars just being influenced by that atmosphere of skepticism. But it is interesting to find that when you look at, say, you know, D.A. Carson, for example, He's gonna he's gonna say the traditional authors wrote um, wrote the gospels. Even interestingly, Craig Keener, who I think probably was educated in a more uh, somewhat more liberal uh, school, though he himself is definitely deemed an evangelical conservative, he moved somewhat on the uh, authorship of Matthew. Now I don't think he moved far enough, but where he he went from oh I don't think Matthew had anything to do with it to well Matthew. Um, probably had something to do with it, but I don't know how much Matthew had to do with it. So it's interesting to watch that movement. The other thing is that I think sometimes even these evangelical scholars are not digging down deep enough into some of the arguments to realize that that they're question begging. So to give an example there, um, there can be a developmentalist thesis like, well, John's Christology is quote unquote high. Mm -hmm. So probably it was written by a Johannine community in a Hellenistic context rather than um, being written by a Jewish disciple of Jesus, for example. And if someone's influenced by that, as I think, for example, Craig Evans has probably been influenced by that, and he's a, you know, 
he's allegedly an evangelical and he's a Christian and he is a Christian, you need to then dig back down in there and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, this is assuming that Jesus didn't really uh, teach that he was the son of God or that, you know, he didn't really. Um, so it's sort of question begging against uh, the very question at issue, which is, was Jesus the son of God? Did Jesus say that he was God? And so forth. And I think they don't always question the presuppositions enough that lie behind some of those dating assumptions that are coming from their educational background. Yeah, I think that's a very good point that you brought up there, Lydia, because this was uh, one of the reasons Tony recommended that I bring you on to sort of contrast with uh, Michael Kona and some of the other evangelical scholars who have a different take um, on the gospel reliability issue. So I was just wondering if you might be able to sort of quickly summarize some of the differences in how you approach the gospels versus some of the, the other uh, evangelical scholars out there. Do, you know, do, do you think everything in the gospels about what Jesus said and did is an accurate, historically accurate representation or yeah, where, where, where would you see yourself on that compared to others? Sure, ab- absolutely, and uh, I'll try to be as quick as I can. I have a I have a book manuscript that's just gone to be uh, copy edited um, on this, and it's it's a it's a long book, and it's to be called the Mirror of the Mask. So I hope when it comes out, hopefully in the fall, people will uh, grab a copy of that. So the view taken by Dr. Lacona is that the gospel authors often felt free to alter certain facts in their stories because he he believes this was allowed by the literary standards of their time. He promotes the idea of certain literary devices. These would have created invisible factual changes in the documents. I think that word invisible is important. Uh, It's my word, but I think it's an accurate representation of his view. Even the original audience could have only guessed where these things had been changed because the document itself would appear realistic um, even if the author was deliberately putting things in there that were not factually true say a a date or a time was changed so i i don't think that's correct i don't think we have any evidence that the authors felt free to do that kind of changing Uh, i have an that entire book manuscript on that, but I believe that the argument for those kinds of very deliberate fact-changing devices in the Gospels fails at, at every single point. So I got, I've got to interrupt there. I hope you have more to say, but I, I can't remember if it was Dr. Lacona or Dr. Evans. I'm almost sure it was Dr. Evans uh, who talks about, uh, and I might get this wrong, but you're a scholar, so you can correct me, uh, Crea. I think it is uh, this this style of uh, teaching that says you know it's kind of like a remixing of the data to make it relevant to the audience. So you've got you've got these handful of facts, and then you can remix them any way you want to, in order to tell the story that will be most relevant to the audience that you're speaking with. That's kind of a, a layman's mm-hmm. view of Crea. Mm-hmm. Is that just total BS? Um, yes. <laughs> it's completely wrong. Um, I have an entire chapter on that in my book manuscript. I have a blog post, though, that you can read that's a kind of a preview of that. I call the blog post Going Crazy, and um, that's on what's wrong with the world. I thought that was such a great title. That we I will link to that if you will allow us. If you title say. of my chapter. I can get you that, that blog post link, and people can navigate to it, too, from uh, from my homepage. But um, it it. it 
rests to begin with on a complete misunderstanding of the use of crea even in the Greco-Roman exercise books. So even at that level, uh, it's wrong. If you were at, at somebody's home and you picked up your friend's high school's kid's uh, textbook, his say his English textbook off the table, and it said, you know, write a story uh, about a person in uh, the time of George Washington who met George Washington at Valley Forge and so forth. This is just a writing exercise. This is not a piece of historiographic advice telling the student, hey, if someday you're a serious historian and you're presenting something as if it is seriously historical, it's perfectly fine to make up a character that never existed and have him meet George Washington and then to put that in your history book as if it really happened. That's what these writing exercises are like. They're literally just attempts to get the student to write. To some extent, we're familiar with this as well. They have they have prompts. We would call them prompts uh, in English. I, my PhD is in English, um, and I've I've even I've even written for the MCAT, um, and I've trained a couple of kids to take their standardized tests and that kind of thing where they've got an essay section and that's what we're talking about here we're talking about prompts for writing so i go through in my chapter even more than in my blog post the misunderstandings about these crea exercises where they're taking them as if they're you know historic historical advice about how to write history and that's just a misunderstanding moreover he uh he misuses, Dr. Evans misuses the word crea in a quotation from Papias, and uh, Dr. Richard Balcom, who isn't even probably as conservative as I am in other ways, agrees with me about this. The word crea just meant an anecdote. It just meant a story, okay? Like that, and it could be a completely true story, though, okay? It, and so when it says, when Papias says that Mark, uh, that um Peter told his stories as Crea, that just means Peter told anecdotes. That doesn't mean Peter was rhetorically trained. In fact, it would be very unlikely if Peter had even studied any Greco-Roman uh, you know, textbooks or anything. That just wouldn't fit with what we know about Peter. So the word Crea is being taken by Dr. Uh, Evans in a more uh, shall we say, technical sense, then Papias appears to be using it. And to make it even worse, it's being taken out of context because Papias says that, uh, but Mark did not put any in anything that was fictitious. So, I mean, in the very context in which he uses that word, he emphasizes the factual, literal, historical truthfulness of what Mark wrote. So to take that word and then to turn it against the very emphasis in Papias is really um, not accurate in a scholarly fashion so yeah that 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 whole thing it's just wrong uh every from every direction okay um and out of i'm not sure did you get a chance to uh highlight some specific examples in, in terms of your differences compared to uh some of these other scholars like um yeah, I, yeah go go ahead yeah so i can give an example here um so i think the authors are holding themselves to a very high standard of historical accuracy, and I think we have lots of evidence that they did that. Here's a, just one example. Dr. Lacona thinks that Luke moved the geographical location where Jesus first met with his disciples after the resurrection from Galilee to Jerusalem. In other words, he thinks that it really happened in Galilee, but that Luke, what we might say, had it 
mm-hmm. happen in Jerusalem. Uh, that's a good 70 miles or more. Uh, and of course, they walked everywhere. So this is not a small thing. In fact, it, it would change the circumstances as well, because the meeting that's recorded in Matthew in Galilee, they go expecting to meet Jesus, whereas the meeting recorded in Jerusalem in Luke is unexpected. They're uh, standing around talking indoors, and suddenly Jesus is there among them. Now, I think the arguments that Dr. Lacona gives for that are completely wrong. In fact, interestingly, the the fact that there was a meeting first in Jerusalem is what we could call multiply attested. Luke and John uh, give different versions of this meeting, not in contradiction, but just varying details. And they both agree that it was in Jerusalem. This makes sense as well from a social point of view, because if the male disciples had not yet met uh, Jesus or had other evidence that he was risen that convinced them, they would be unlikely to set off in the middle of the the feast of unleavened bread that was going on at that time to walk all the way to Galilee to go to a particular mountain and try to see and meet Jesus just on the word of the women who said that they had um, said that they had seen Jesus. I, and I'm not trying to uh, sound like a feminist here, but it just is true. And Luke even bears this out that they were skeptical of the women's report. So it's it's very implausible that uh, suddenly they they got um, very progressive and said, hey, you know, I'm sure Mary Magdalene knows what she's talking about. Let's all 12 of us, or I, sorry, it would have been 11 because uh, Judas was dead. Let's all set off and walk up uh, all that way north and break up the festival and so forth and go to this mountain and maybe we'll meet Jesus. That's very implausible. So it makes more sense that they did meet him in Jerusalem, just as reported by Luke and John, and then that later, having been convinced that he really was alive, then they were able to convince other people to eventually, like eight or nine days later, when the feast was over, make that trek to Galilee, and that there were uh, later meetings in Galilee. Also, we have a lot of independent evidence that Luke holds himself to a very Uh, high historical standard. He's a very meticulous historian. So Luke would not be expected to move the people around like what we we might call chess pieces. Uh, Okay, I know it it really happened in Galilee, but I'm going to have them down here in Jerusalem instead. So that's one example of a difference between us. There are many, many, many more. I have an entire blog series on um, Dr. Lucona's work where I give a bunch of examples and then obviously in the book I'm working on as well. What, so, about, what about speeches? Um, like, for example, there's a, a dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders um, where I, I know Mike, uh, with the healing of the man with the withered hand, um, so I know Mike, for example, would say, well, that, that specific dialogue never actually took place. Uh, he, he thinks that that was... Um, under li- Matthew had the license to sort of in- put that, uh, that, that those words in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's, your, what's your take on something like that? Right. Well, it's interesting that the, this whole Crea thing and the uh, exercise books has already come up here in our discussion. So that's kind of convenient. Um, there's there's an exercise in uh, a book by a guy named Theon where he says, hey, go ahead and create some dialogue. Now, the interesting thing is even in Theon, the dialogue is in what we nowadays would call a frame story. It's not even in the historical incident itself. It's one guy asks the other guy, hey, I've often wanted to ask you to tell me about this 
event that happened long ago. And the other person says, by Jupiter, it is a good time. And he starts to tell him. And was it really true that? So it's entirely frame story dialogue. So that's interesting. But then secondly, even if it were a dialogue uh, that the student was being prompted to create within the story um, and and. Theon has a place where there, he imagines something that someone would say, you know, be worthy of your city or that kind of thing uh, to urge them to fight. That is, again, a writing exercise. That is not a recommendation of how to write literal history. I just don't think Theon was interested in that question. I'm not saying that Theon had some high standard of literary uh, or excuse me historical accuracy i just don't think he addresses that issue at all we can't tell what he thought about historical accuracy so mike is taking those exercises again to be historical advice and that informs his interpretation here uh he says ah Matthew would have been taught in the exercise books to create dialogue. Now, right there, we have a question. How do we know that Matthew even encountered these exercise books? And Mike never addresses that issue, unfortunately. Um, Why would we think that? Uh, So the question of authorship becomes very uh, urgent. But then also, why do we think that these exercise books actually were telling them what they could do in serious history? Now, within the Gospels themselves... Uh, Mike's view there is based on the fact that Mark and Luke do not record a question and a dialogue here is almost too strong a word. It's it's literally one question from Jesus' opponents. Um, They don't record that they ask him if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath day. And they emphasize this sort of what I might call tense standoff where Jesus reads their thoughts and then Jesus asks them, is it uh, lawful to do good or to do harm, to, to heal or to do harm on the Sabbath? And Mark says, but they remained silent. Now, Mike takes all of that to mean that they really just remained silent the entire time. They never said a word. But actually, Mark only says they remained silent after Jesus asked them a question. Matthew uh, records that, that they asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath. So you can see it. They're sort of edging forward this guy and they want to see what Jesus will do. They want a chance to accuse him. Now, I would say that the circumstance where Jesus' opponents ask him a question that they think is going to be a gotcha question, and then he asks them a gotcha question in return, uh, and then they are put to silence, is actually a pattern we see elsewhere. We see that pattern even in Mark. They come and ask him, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar uh, or that kind of thing. Um, by what authority do you do these things and so forth? And then Jesus will turn around and he'll ask them a, a question and they don't want to answer or they can't answer or they're put into a kind of awkward situation. And they, it even uses the phrase to put to silence. So <clears throat> this would then, if we supplement Mark and Luke by Matthew, we, uh, we get a fuller picture that actually fits our picture of Jesus' interactions with his opponents in other places. I think another reason why Mike is close to that is that he's using uh, source criticism and what's sometimes called the two-source hypothesis a little uh, somewhat too rigidly, and in fact, a lot too rigidly, where if Matthew and Mark have the same story, Matthew is then treated as a non-entity because it's believed that he just got it from Mark, and then anything that's in Matthew that's not in Mark must have been invented by Matthew. Well, 
a vast majority of scholars believe that Matthew did make use of Mark, but it does not follow from that that Matthew did not know anything else about those stories on his own. That's a, a separate step, and we don't have evidence of that. In fact, these kinds of variations, these very variations, are evidence that Matthew had uh, additional information, even where he was using Mark as a memory prompt or a literary source. In fact, I have a, an example in Hidden in Plain View, where Matthew's pretty clearly following Mark, or it certainly looks like he's following Mark, and he has this extra little detail that Herod spoke to his servants, and that's actually confirmed by an undesigned coincidence. So I definitely think that that rigidity in the use of the concept of mark and priority is also part of what's informing uh, Mike's assumption there that Matthew just made up that extra question from the opponents of Jesus. Excellent. Yeah, I'll, I'll turn it over to David because there is one last specific example, and this is uh, in particular important for David. So this is the the Matthew 27 thing. So, yeah, go ahead, so, David. Yeah, before I get there, I just want to go back very uh, briefly to something that you said uh, w when you started this. You, you mentioned the women, uh, their testimony wouldn't have been believed and that, in fact, the, the disciples didn't believe them at first. I, I feel uncomfortable with that explanation. That's thrown around a lot um, to explain, I think, too much. Uh, the women's testimony was not necessarily disbelieved, in at least in the biblical stories, because they were women. The disciples didn't believe anybody. Uh, you, you might say they didn't believe Jesus uh, because they didn't, they didn't uh, expect him to rise. It's not like they were sitting around at the tomb waiting for him to rise. So they, they didn't believe that. They had the two men on the road to Emmaus, their testimony, they didn't really believe that. Uh, when Jesus came to see the 11, they didn't really believe that, and Jesus showed them the wounds. And then when Thomas came along, he didn't believe their testimony. And so it wasn't just the women, as if to say, oh, well, because these were women, they wouldn't have been believed. But if it was Peter, he would have been believed. I don't think so. Well, let me let me comment on that. It's, it's, it's an interesting point. We do actually have uh, independent evidence, for example, that women's testimony was counted for less in court. Um I think what you're emphasizing, though, actually fits with the point I am making, which is that if they only had those testimonies and none of them, none of the 11 had seen Jesus, so much the more would they not have traveled to Galilee on that basis. I mean, I actually think that you're right, that incredulity here is to some extent understandable. They took some convincing you're right about that. So, so much the more is it unlikely that the first appearance of Jesus took place in Galilee and that they had just said, okay, hey, let's go to Galilee. Let's go walk, okay, walk all the way to Galilee in the middle of the festival. It would have been more normal for um, Jews to stay there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread if they were already there. And uh, go up there to a particular mountain, Matthew says, to the mountain which Jesus had told them of, um, and hope to see him. That's that's very unlikely, and as you say, it does not fit with the skepticism of Thomas. Uh, was Thomas willing to go on this big, long walk? You know, as you say, Thomas was even skeptical even after the male disciples told him that. So I think Jesus actually did uh, kind of give people, especially outside of the 11, the largest opportunity possible, and I mean particularly uh, believers. I don't think he wanted to appear to a lot of unbelievers, but um, 
he had this larger group. It was larger than the 11. There's a reference to 70 in Luke. Paul refers to 500. So there was there were circles, what we might call concentric circles. And he wanted to meet with one of those larger groups, probably in Galilee, eventually. So he gradually appeared to different people to give them the best opportunity to convince the other people to make that trip to Galilee where he met them. And it would be more convenient, too, for meeting a larger number of people outdoors in the hills up there um, without others present or butting in or whatever um, before the meeting in Galilee. So I think that actually all fits together with the point I was making there using the skepticism of, of what the women said. Okay, so ju- we will not get bogged down there. We're just just for the audience who is, I can feel them peppering me with further follow-ups. I know what else we have on the question list, and I want to get to them, people. So I'm not going to follow up further here. But it's okay. not it's not like I don't have other questions. <laughs> so let's let's jump to Matthew 27 because that's that's a kind of an important one for me, and it's not just a, a matter of oh look at this silly story. See see how the silly Christians tell this story. It's it really is kind of a bellwether for me when when understanding how a particular Christian reads the Bible. Uh, and so there are three options as near as I can tell. I, there might be more, but there's the option of Matthew meant this great resurrection. That he, he meant this literally, and it literally happened. Or he meant it literally, and it didn't literally happen. Or he never meant it literally and never meant anyone to think it literally happened. Uh, Mike Lacona takes the third view. What is your view? Yeah, I love it. I love it that you divide that up like that. That's how I do things as a as a philosopher. Like there's there's three options. Let's be sure we cover all the bases and so forth. I I think he meant it literally, and it's probable that it really happened. Literally happened. What I would say is, I don't. I think it's possible that Matthew did not have a lot more detail than what he gives us in his narrative in comparison to, say, the detail of um, other aspects of Jesus' crucifixion. For example, the taunts that people threw at Jesus or what Jesus said from the cross. He seems to have uh, much more up-close information about that and goes into more detail. Uh, Or the earthquake, for example. Matthew says that the centurion actually saw the earthquake. However, I take that statement that Matthew makes about the centurion seeing the earthquake to be evidence that he also intends the rising to be taken literally. The reason is because Matthew puts together all those things, the darkness, the earthquake, and the uh, opening of the tombs, and then eventually the rising of the saints in as what we might call remarkable things that happened at Uh, Jesus' crucifixion, though it's possible that their coming out and arising part did not happen till Sunday, but at least their graves being opened possibly by the earthquake. And then he says the centurion saw the earthquake and the things that were done. Now that's that's a tie down there, that he's actually depicting the scene in a realistic way that the centurion looks around and says, you know, basically, oh my gosh. I don't think Matthew would have put that in there if he did not intend his audience to take it to take it literally. But the fact that he doesn't go into more detail concerning the rising of the saints 
to me bespeaks that maybe Matthew is getting this at maybe say one remove uh, or two removes. Matthew probably wasn't at the cross. John probably was at the cross uh, and the women disciples were at the cross. But Matthew may be getting this at just a little bit further of a remove about the saints rising and people recognizing them and so forth. I think they were recently deceased people that people were able to recognize. So he just maybe doesn't have a whole lot more to tell us. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are so skeptical and consider that passage to be so dubious is because it's so short. It's so abrupt. Um, So sure, that's going to decrease the evidence that we have because it doesn't have as detailed a feel to it as some of the other things. But because Matthew, I find to be generally reliable in other ways. I don't have any stronger read, and because I don't have a, any uh, prejudice against miracles generally, I don't have any stronger reason to believe that that did not happen. So let me let me. This is this is the point where I plug in the disclaimer uh, for any new listeners and for the guest who may not know this. I was a Christian for most of my life, uh, up to about age forty. And for much of that time, if not the vast majority of that time, I was a preacher of some description, a leader in the church. So this is this is not new to me. And um, whereas I was never an academic, I don't want to uh, to to suggest that this this was the the air that I breathed. Um, and so that that saying, even as a Christian and a very conservative Christian in the in the U.S. Uh, South in the Bible Belt. I did not believe this story was literal. Now, I believed that it was supposed to be literal. Uh, I believe that Matthew wrote it as literal, but at some point in my Christian walk, I came to simply reject this as a thing that actually happened in history in any way, shape, form, or fashion. That means either Matthew was incorrect or Matthew was lying. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that neither one of those things works for me. I don't, I can't, I can't reconcile that to any version of Christianity that would would make sense. Mm-hmm. So that's you know even with my Christian hat snugly on, it doesn't fit as comfortably these days as it once did. I simply cannot. I agree with your assessment entirely. This was meant to be the verisimilitudes in this passage seem to be saying because these things happened, uh, you can know that the resurrection was true. And mm-hmm. and I would say to tie the resurrection of Jesus to any of these events is to undo the resurrection of Jesus. Right. Well, now let me be clear here. Matthew could be wrong about the resurrection of the other saints and yet completely right about the resurrection of Jesus. I do not route my argument for the resurrection of Jesus through the premise that the, the other uh, saints rose as in Matthew 27. And, and I've done a lot of work in my professional work as an epistemologist on epistemic routing, as I call it, where we've got uh, nodes. We make these things, we call them we call them base nets. And then uh, my husband and I are foundationalists. Uh, base nets are called directed acyclic graphs. That's uh, the kind of graph they are. They only go one direction. And um, and I think that's correct, that evidence goes one direction. So it's always useful to be thinking about what am I routing this through? You can have mutual support between things. So, for example, 
I'm not saying the rising of the saints has no relevance to whether Jesus wrote the other saints has no relevance to whether Jesus rose from the dead or vice versa. I'm just saying it is no necessary premise for the conclusion Jesus rose from the dead that these other uh, people also rose from the dead. The one could be wrong while the other is right. But if you don't mind my asking you a question, when you had your Christian hat firmly on, did you similarly doubt the resurrection of Jairus's daughter, let's just say, or the son of the widow of Nain? And if you didn't, what was striking you about the resurrection here in Matthew that made it seem more incredible than those resurrections? Well, I think those resurrections did give me a, a little problem since they were just unfalsifiable. So, but only very only in that sense. There, there are things that you can't falsify. This happened uh, with one person. Only one person would have known about it. It's not like a whole community would have known about it. And and so you can ask yourself, well, you know, if it didn't happen. Who, who would be there to say, oh, no, that never happened? No one. You, there's, there's no way to really falsify that, even, even from a historical perspective. But with Matthew 27, this is the biggest miracle ever recorded in the history of miracle stories. Uh, many came from the dead and appeared to many. That's many times many. You can't hide that behind obscurity. If it happened, people would know about it. And so that's the um, that's the thing that gave me the biggest problem, I think, with the Matthew 27 story, is that it's n- it is falsifiable in that the absence of evidence in other sources is kind of uh, the evidence of absence, because it's, okay. it's something we should expect. Okay, that's a very good, that's a very good answer. I mean, it, I don't agree with it, but thank you, that's clear. Um, let me, let me just address something. The entirety of the Uh, literature that we have from the first century uh, would fill about one shelf, okay? Um, And it's, I mean, a lot has perished, but also uh, just not a lot was written about, there was no, we have no copies of the Jerusalem Times from three days after Jesus rose again. Nobody was uh, live blogging any of this stuff. And so I, I think that in many cases, this kind of argument from silence that is common concerning this uh, rising of the saints and other things as well, even Jesus' miracles it's sometimes used for, is anachronistic. We ourselves are immersed in information. If something happens, it gets reported and we have a record of it. Um, Whereas our our non-Christian sources at the time, they're not concerned with the nitty-gritty details of what was happening in uh, first century Palestine at just that particular time. I think it's also important to remember that if these people who did rise, um, and we don't know exactly what Matthew means by many, does he mean 20? Does he mean 100? Does he mean 10? We don't know. But if they were recently deceased people and the attestation that they rose were from their relatives, then you're not even going to find necessarily people outside of their immediate circles who are going to be able to verify that they have risen from the dead. Uh, it's again, people didn't have social security numbers, so you know, legal cases or whatever to reinstate their property or whatever aren't necessarily going to arise. This can be taken care of uh, informally. So the idea that we would find other evidence, I completely disagree with that. Um, to find even one, a uh, source mentioning it is, you know, 
there you go. We've got one source that mentions it, but it would be the kind of thing that I would definitely – I would not expect Josephus to mention it. Um, he might if he heard some rumor of it, but he very easily might not. I certainly wouldn't expect Tacitus to mention it uh, or Plutarch or any of these guys. They're concerned with just other matters. So I I, I don't think you should think of it as a, a this – like a sign in the sky, so to speak. Like you might think if there if there were stars, you know, rearranging themselves to say worship God and every man on earth, you know, saw it or something like that. It's I don't think it's on that level. I think it's a local miracle. So I would just throw that out there. Definitely be skeptical of, of arguments from silence. So, you know, be skeptical about something else. Uh, you know, there's our skepticism, where we apply our skepticism is always an interesting thing. And so I would definitely encourage you to sort of widen your skepticism, try to be skeptical about the argument from silence form as well, particularly when it comes to uh, things that happened 2000 years ago. So that's a, that's a really tough sell, Lydia. I've, I've got to say, I, so I, it's not like I have not heard your audience. If you don't mind, just just wrap it because there's still we're still in question this, four. I under I understand. Um, kind of important. Give me a minute. Um, so, yeah, we have details in the Gospels that simply don't matter. Uh, we we have we have um, you know stories that don't matter. I would say even miracle stories that don't matter. This is huge, and it is attached to the. Uh, death and resurrection of Jesus in a very special way, I think. It, it is a bigger resurrection than Jesus because more people were raised and then they appear to uh, many people. I, I, you say that Josephus wouldn't have written about it. I, it would have been all he would have written about. You That's say, not true. I, Absolutely I, I, not. Dead you people read, were... read more Josephus and see what he does write about. He's interested in the relationship of the Jews with the Romans. He's interested in the wars that they had. Um that's absolutely not all he would have written about. In fact, it's rather surprising he even mentions John the Baptist at all. He does, which is interesting. We have all kinds of cool incidental confirmations from Josephus of things in the Gospels, uh, like, for example, um, where John the Baptist was executed and things like that. But um, no, it, it, we, our preoccupations are not there a bunch of dead people got up from the grave and walked around and introduced themselves to people. This is something, I don't care how few sources we have from that time, people, we should, every one of the sources we have should mention that. Look, it this doesn't, is... It this doesn't is, work that way. You know, you should, it's interesting, Tim has some really cool examples of calibrating our arguments from silence. So let me give you just one example. Okay. Um, we have a, a biography of, I believe it's Abraham Lincoln, uh, written by someone at the time, and I think it may be Grant. I didn't look this up before, so I'd have to I have to check it with him. But it was a contemporary of Lincoln. He never mentions the Emancipation Proclamation. It's astonishing. At least by got biography of Abraham Lincoln that never mentions the Emancipation Proclamation. Marco Polo, in his story of his journey to China, never mentions. The Great Wall. Think, Marco, did you see something? It's a certain number of feet wide and many, many, many miles long. You know, did you just miss it or something? So we really have to calibrate our arguments from silence from real history where we actually find 
things that are just not mentioned. And, and we need to change our notion of what people would have mentioned. Okay. 53 minutes. We're going we're gonna to move on to the next few questions, but agree to disagree okay. um, here. <laughs> fair enough. And that was yeah. a great, great exchange. I, I tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I think it'll be educational for the audience to hear the, the back and forth there from, from the skeptical side versus the Christian versus uh, Lydia's perspective. Okay, uh, take it. So, uh, yeah, um, we, so we did one last final aspect okay. that I think is important. Um, no, no, uh, no, no. So, for question four, so it's in regards to the Old Testament, Lydia. So, um, so we've been going back and forth on the New Testament, but um, how about interpreting the Old Testament accounts? Um, how, do you approach those accounts in the same way, or, or see those as uh, accurate in the same way as well? I think here it's real important to make a distinction that David has already uh, made between the author's intention and the possibility that the author made a mistake. So as we've already discussed, I don't consider myself an inerratist, but if a document in the Old Testament presents itself as historical in a very obvious, direct way, as the Gospels do. So First Kings, just to pick an example, which is a chronicle, you know, of the uh, kings of Israel, or even Deuteronomy, which uh, chronicles, you know, the people in the wilderness, the second giving of the law and God's interaction with them. I do take that seriously as an indication of the kind of book that the author himself was presenting to its audience. Now, that does not in itself mean there couldn't be errors, but I do think we have to, um, in a sense, not save our inerrancy by making up fancy genres that um, really don't appear at all on their face in the Old Testament. On the other hand, I think you can sometimes make arguments that a certain book doesn't ground itself very thoroughly in history. I would say the book of Job might fall in here. We have no idea where the land of Uz was, and that's like the only tie-down the author gives. There once was a man in the land of us. Uh, and between that and sort of the, what I would call play-like aspects of it, you know, servant comes on stage, all your children have been killed, the house fell. You know, next, Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Another servant comes on stage, all of your crops have been destroyed. You know, it looks like a play to me. So occasionally, I think we do have signs that there was uh, the author did not intend it to be taken to be tied down in history, but where it appears historical, I would I would take it to be such. Now, um, do I think there may be errors in the Old Testament? Yes, just like I do in the New Testament. Um, I try to take that on a case by case basis. Um, and, and yet, in many cases, I think that harmonization is possible as well. So I try to take the same approach in both places, although I would say I have not studied the Old Testament as closely as I have studied the New Testament. Gotcha. Okay, well, we can move on to the, to the next question, David. I, I think we could probably move on to question eight, because um, I, was, I was going over the list, and I'm not sure yeah, that it, any of this has not been covered pretty well. Gotcha. So cool. while, you, while you're just glancing over the list to see if you agree with me, let me just follow up with that. So you, you say that Job you don't think is literal because it looks like a play? A lot and because of... there's not a lot of historical tie-down, like he doesn't name a lot of places that we independently know or people that we independently know. The author doesn't appear to be attempting the way the Gospels are to tie it down historically. But Job would have been one of the earliest documents written. Uh, possibly before the Pentateuch. I mean, they're certainly very old. Is isn't it possible that you know there just wasn't a lot of maybe maybe just didn't 
put a lot of historical data per se in their stories. I mean, it still could have been literal, but it, it sure, was a, it was a small possible. world. It was a very small yeah, old world. I'm I'm open to that. I'm I'm not dogmatic about it either way. I was just raising that as an example, and I think we can definitely contrast that to other books, even in the Old Testament. I mean, Genesis. Uh, you know, the story of say Jacob. Okay, we've got all these like uh, geographical things. He went here, he went there. We can still find those places today. Um, and the character of Jacob uh, is a very interesting study. Uh, what a what a consistent and, and devious and interesting character study you get there. So I think that even in very uh, ancient documents in the Old Testament, we do find a lot more historical detail. But absolutely, I'm open to Job being a literal person as well. I'm by no means uh, dogmatic about that one way or another. I would just contrast it with some of the other Old Testament books. Okay, so you're you're not a Job mythicist per se? No. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Dale, do you agree? Uh, question agree. eight or front letter? Yeah. So, um, thank you, uh, Lydia, for your uh, more expansive answers because it, it does cover a lot of the things that we had anticipated asking. And um, I, I know that our audience appreciates um, having guests on that don't appear to be um, holding back. So thank, thank you for that. Not one of my faults. No. <laughs> you will not be accused of that this week, I promise. Um, so, it just just in terms of uh, the Gospels and uh, accuracy, again, not not so much accuracy, but we have four writers at least, um, and there are definitely details that are not the same in the Gospels. So um, this is less about whether they made things up and more about uh, mistakes versus in intentional differences. In other words, might they have different opinions about what happened? Uh, you know, with, with that explain it, or do you think they have the same opinion about everything and we, and everything can be harmonized? I don't think everything can be harmonized, but I think the vast majority of things can be harmonized. I have a, I have like a handful of holdouts. This is part of why I say I'm not an inerrantist. Um, so one example would be when Jesus' feet were anointed at, at his, uh, in the last week of his life. John, to my reading, appears pretty firmly to be placing that on a Saturday. Whereas um, I would say Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, oh, excuse me, it's not in Luke, Matthew and Mark appear pretty firmly to be placing it on the following Wednesday. Um, now, we can, people can dispute about that. People have suggested that Mark is not really trying to place that chronologically. That's probably the best bet <clears throat> for harmonization. But to my mind, it really looks like Mark is placing that event on the Wednesday. So that would be a difference of opinion. So I would take that to be a difference of opinion as to who was right and who was wrong. Um, if we take that to be a genuine discrepancy, I might opt slightly for Ma uh, for Matthew and Mark, just because I think they were writing it down closer to the time, and also because Jesus was uh, in and out of Bethany every night for about, I think, five nights, Saturday through Wednesday. So he's doing the same thing. He's eating with probably the same people in the same very small village. Uh, we might call Bethany his hotel during that time. So I think it's the type of thing that would be very easy to make for even a very accurate, reliable witness to make a small, trivial error about. But I do think it's very important to emphasize that differences do not 
even amount to apparent contradictions. I find this a lot in New Testament studies, and I, I find it disheartening almost that you'll have something that's a mere difference. It doesn't even appear to be a discrepancy. And you'll find some New Testament scholar making up some theory that there's a tension here. So here's one example. Um, in Mark, it begins with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, which is a quotation from Isaiah. And he's applying that to John the Baptist and, and starts narrating John the Baptist's ministry. And then, uh, and he doesn't, John, Mark doesn't mention that John the Baptist said of himself, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, but he doesn't contradict it either. The narrator quotes that verse. So then over in John, when they, uh, John's gospel, when they come and ask John the Baptist, who are you? Eventually he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Well, I've seen a scholar say that this is some kind of tension, you know, and uh, it's not a tension at all. In fact, you could almost see it as fitting together, that if John the Baptist did apply this verse to himself, it would have been in the minds of people who knew about John the Baptist, maybe Mark's sources or Mark, we don't know how uh, how close he was to Jesus' um, ministry. Papias says he didn't follow Jesus, but that he followed Peter. So Peter might have associated that verse with uh, with John the Baptist. So these fit together great. There's not a discrepancy there. So I think it's really important. I don't even use the word harmonization when it comes to something like that, where there's not even an apparent discrepancy. I say, I don't even have to harmonize these. They're fine. They're fine just the way they are. They're complementary. Um, and then in other cases, I, I think harmonization is a wonderful um, historical activity. It's not a religious activity. And, and I even harmonize Plutarch. So that's why I think that the vast majority of the alleged discrepancies between the Gospels are not uh, are, are harmonizable just by the use of, of reason and common sense. Nice. All right. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that answer is pretty comprehensive. Uh, I appreciate that there. But uh, what I want to do now is sort of move on to question nine and ten because uh, I think we're David's going to have a bit of back and forth on this. I know he was he's very interested in these undesigned coincidences that you you know you're famous for being one of the advocates of of reviving this argument, so to speak. So. Um, yeah, in, in the first place, um, can you give us uh, Basis's argument? What what sort of conclusions do you think can be gleaned based on them, assuming they're all they're all true? Um, yeah, what what's the significance of this line of reasoning? Sure. Well, I think that the uh, we can conclude from that first that the gospel authors were aiming to report truthful history, and second of all, that they succeeded very well. I think we can also see that they were written by people who were close to the facts, um, not a great many removes. And that's, of course, very important because someone like Bart Ehrman will use the analogy of the telephone game where one person whispers in someone's ear and that person whispers in the next person's ear. And the game, of course, is deliberately designed to maximize uh, the change in the message from the first person to later people. And that's the humor of the game. But 
I think the undesigned coincidences definitely push back against that telephone game picture and shows them to be quite close to the facts. That's obviously going to have relevance to skepticism. Another really interesting thing about the undesigned coincidences that I mention in my book, Hidden in Plain View, is that the Gospel of John has the most undesigned coincidences of any gospel. This is unexpected from the perspective of critical gospel scholarship, uh, because critical gospel scholarship tends to treat John as less historically reliable than the synoptics. Uh, it's very contrary to the picture that both skeptics and many scholars have of John. There's this, I, I call it the Eohippus model of the gospels. You may remember the um, Eohippus was the prehistoric horse. And uh, so we have these pictures of uh, the little prehistoric horse, and then it gradually gets bigger and bigger. Now, I'm not going to say anything one way or another about whether that's a true account of the way the horse evolved, but there's definitely a tendency to apply that to the Gospels. So then Mark is the shortest. So then Mark is like, ah, that's that's our little kernel. And then everything else is sort of evolving in a non uh a non-historical fashion, and then John, of course, being probably the latest written of the Gospels, is treated with the greatest uh, dubiousness. But on the contrary, what we find with undesigned coincidences is that the more that John tells us, the more he has the opportunity to be shown to be confirmed by these wonderful subtle interlockings with the uh, the synoptic Gospels, the earlier Gospels. So that's a really cool facet of it. Okay, and just before I turn it over to David, because I think this will be a good thing to have some back and forth on, but could you maybe just for the audience provide some key examples that you think are um, interesting examples of undesigned coincidences? And among those, are, are there any that uh, you think could be used to argue for the historicity of some of the miracle accounts um, outside of the resurrection, for example? Sure. Um, and so please, please buy my book, Hidden in Plain View. Uh, you can look it up on Amazon, available wherever books are sold, because I've got a lot more there. So I can just give a few, but let me just give one right here. I alluded to it earlier. Um, Matthew gives a rather similar account of the death of John the Baptist to the account that is given in Mark. Uh, it, it probably is evidence that Matthew had Mark available to him and may have even been using it. But there's a unique detail in Matthew 14. This is the lead-in to the story of the death of John the Baptist, which is going to be told as a flashback. Um, Matthew says that Jesus and his disciples are having this big ministry and performing exorcisms and whatnot, and that Herod is uh, kind of disturbed by this and that Herod says to his servants this must be John the Baptist risen from the dead and this is why these miracles are being performed by him so the the execution of John the Baptist apparently bothered Herod somewhat and so he's superstitiously hypothesizing that Jesus may be John the Baptist risen from the dead only Matthew has the phrase to his servants now this is exactly the kind of thing that we might think uh, if it was somewhat fictionalized history Matthew might have just thrown that in to make it more vivid or more interesting that he was speaking to his servants because otherwise how could Matthew possibly know what Herod was saying to his servants but when we go over to Luke chapter 8 this is not the account of the death of John the Baptist Luke has an account of the death of John the Baptist but that's not what this passage is Luke is just talking about some women who followed Jesus from Galilee <clears throat> and uh, they actually gave him money and so forth and he's listing uh, some of their names so he lists um, 
Mary Magdalene, for example, and he then says, and Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's steward, Herod's household manager. So this is great. It's not even the same context. Luke just mentions in passing that there were followers of Jesus who were related to people in the upper echelons of Herod's uh, household, Herod's servants. So that provides a very plausible and, in fact, very natural. We don't even have to say, oh, the Holy Spirit, you know, took the trouble to specially reveal to Matthew that Herod was speaking to his servants. This could have come back to Matthew through Joanna, mm. that this was a conversation. So that's one example. Um and it's really great because it confirms Matthew's independent material. And that's relevant to what I was saying before about the story of the man with the withered hand, that even when Matthew is uh, telling the same story that we find in Mark, that does not mean that we should take Matthew to be ignorant of anything beyond what he got from Mark. So then you asked about other um, other another miracle. The feeding of the 5,000 is a good example. It has several undesigned coincidences. I take this to be because it's told in all four Gospels. So you get these different versions in all four Gospels. That provides opportunities to um, to confirm it by these undesigned coincidences. If I'm not mistaken, besides Jesus' resurrection, I believe the feeding of the 5,000 may be the only miracle that's told in all four Gospels. So here's one uh, undesigned coincidence there. Uh, in John uh, 6, it says that when Jesus saw the the crowd coming toward him toward the end of the day, he turned to Philip and he said, where shall we buy bread to feed these people? Now, you know, it could have just been that Philip just happened to be standing there. What were the odds? One out of 12, you know, uh, that he was the disciple. It could be chance, but it's more satisfying if there's a reason. And if the event happened in the real world, okay, so we're, what we're doing is we're test driving that hypothesis that the event took place in the real world. And if it did, there could have been some more particular reason why Jesus asked Philip. Now, we know that Jesus was teasing Philip. John even says so. He himself knew what he would do. Okay, so there's, you know, thousands of people, more than 5,000 people, in fact, 5,000 men, plus all the women and the children. And he says, hey, where can we buy food to feed these guys? Um, and of course, the, the disciples rise to the bait and Philip says, you know, we can possibly afford to feed all these people. Well, in John 1, 44, we just get in a completely separate context. In fact, we have this in uh, John 12 as well, but mentioned in completely different context. In passing, Philip was from Bethsaida, <clears throat> which was the same town that uh, Peter was from. And then you go to Luke 9. Again, you got to put through all these three together. Luke mentions that the feeding of the 5,000 took place near Bethsaida in a deserted area not far from the little town of Bethsaida. Now, when you put all of these together, you have a very plausible reason why Jesus might have asked Philip, hey, Philip, where, where around here can I buy bread to feed these? So that if Jesus was going to, as it were, pull their chain, he would have turned to a local man. That's just one out of several examples concerning the feeding of the 5,000. I'd like to throw one in about the trial of Jesus from uh, Luke 23 and John 18. Uh, in Luke 23, it says that uh, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you've said it. 
Now, I think there's evidence that this was a uh, idiom, very similar to our, our phrase, you said it, which means yes. But even if you do not accept that that was an idiom, it's certainly a very cheeky answer and he does not deny the charge. Uh, in fact, in John, we find Pilate kind of amazed at how unflappable Jesus is with him, even though he has the power of life and death over him. Jesus does not deny this charge that he considers himself the king of the Jews. It's a very serious charge from the Roman perspective, and that's why the leaders have brought that against him. In Luke, it says that Pilate went out and he said, I find no fault in this man. Now, that is really weird, because if Jesus is accused of sedition, he's accused of calling himself a king, Pilate asks him, and he doesn't deny that charge. He's just like, yeah, you said it, you know. Why would Pilate say he didn't find any fault in him? It's an open question. If you go to John 18, you find a um, discussion, a more detailed version of the dialogue that took place between Jesus and Pilate. Jesus says, he affirms that he's a king, but he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be turned over, um, but my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate probably concluded that he was a harmless religious crank, and that's why he goes out and says, I find no fault in him. But you need to put these together to get this. This is amazing because this is evidence that we that there were probably people present at that uh, interrogation. People will sometimes say that they were alone. That is not stated in any gospel. All that is stated is that the leaders did not go in because they believed they would be defiled ceremonially uh, if they went into Pilate's Hall. But there would have been guards. We know that later um, various Romans uh, did convert to Christianity. The beloved disciple might have been allowed to be there. There could have been a few people there who actually witnessed this dialogue and that fitting together, what what I call that puzzle piece, fitting together of these facts that one raises a question that the other answers is in fact evidence for that and for the accuracy of the accounts. And there's a lot more like this in the book Hidden in Plain View. Okay, so let's let's talk about those undesigned coincidences a little more. So I want to I want to acknowledge Right up front here, uh, Lydia, I like your work on undesigned coincidences. Uh, I really do. And as a as a former uh, Christian, I would I would point to these undesigned coincidences and in, in your work on undesigned coincidences as a good example to uh, suggest the accuracy and historicity of the Gospels. I would I find this, in fact, the most compelling evidence uh, for the historicity of the gospel. So I, I just want to give you that up front. If, if, there's, if there's anything as a skeptic, because I, I actually still am not convinced by it, and I, I, don't, I don't believe the gospels are particularly historic or particularly ac- accurate, but if I were getting in a debate with someone about it, you would be the one that scares me the most. So I, I take I take that as a compliment. It is a compliment. <laughs> so, um, which is why I'm not going to actually form you formally debate you over this. But I do have I do have issues with it. I, I can talk about a little bit why I'm I'm still left unconvinced uh, by it, uh, even though I do think that you make the strongest case of of uh, the new apologists for your position. Uh, so uh, that said. Why why am I not convinced? Well, first of all, I'm not convinced that all of the things that you consider undesigned coincidences 
can't simply be explained by later writers filling in the gaps. Uh, I am a writer. I'm a freelance writer. I don't, I don't write fiction, but I do a lot of research uh, for the things that I write. And I can very easily, uh, if I wanted to, uh, do enough research and fill in the gaps. And so you just take John and, you know, except that John had access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and that Luke had access to Matthew and uh, Mark. Uh, it's it's possible for the writers to, you know, see some of those details and let those details form uh, how they write. And I, I don't know that we can prove that everything uh, that you might consider an undesigned coincidence is really a coincidence. It just might be a writer who knows the region and the time. And, you know, if they are maybe fabricating some events or, or being creative in some events, they could, they could use their knowledge of the time in the region and what the other authors said to, to write credible stories there that fill in the details. So I guess my first question is how, how can you be sure that all of the undesigned coincidences that you call coincidence coincidences really aren't just writers being good writers right so that's it's a good question and i i address that at length in the book and of course it's a sort of obvious uh question uh i think that john did have access to the synoptics by the way that's a hotly debated issue but i think he did let's take the example of philip that i gave a minute ago um let us suppose that uh john knew that uh, or believed that the feeding of the 5,000 did take place near Bethsaida, which he, he himself does not mention. Now, and then we know from elsewhere, completely elsewhere in his gospel, that he knew or believed that Philip himself came from Bethsaida. Nonetheless, it doesn't make him a particularly uh, good writer if he crafted or made up the detail that Jesus spoke to Philip in order to fit that together with these other facts. And the reason is that it's way too subtle. Uh, many Christians, in fact, I, I knew the Bible inside and out uh, and never noticed that connection. If you're going to use a connection in order to make your narrative seem more credible and you're going to fabricate something for that purpose, it, it can't be so subtle that a bunch of people, you know, the vast majority of people just miss it. But how do you know That's the vast majority of... That's not a literary of... way to proceed. A literary way to proceed would be for him to actually say that Philip was from Bethsaida and that it took place near Bethsaida in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and then have Jesus ask him. That would be the way a literary author would proceed. But how do you know that John's audience wouldn't have known that too? Uh, I mean, y y it would have maybe bypassed you because you're removed by by space and time from this event and culture but the people that john uh would have written to wouldn't have been nearly as removed and so that that may have been a detail that they would have caught or that many would have thought would have been obvious they might have but you'd be surprised i mean let's put it this way removed in space or time or not i and millions of other christians have the places where it says these things. And we actually have the documents that say them. And we pour over those documents. My generation practically, you know, memorized the Bible. I mean, I know that we don't have as much reading going on nowadays, but it was very, you know, Bible knowledge and especially Bible trivia was a big deal. Um, so, yeah, they, of course they might have known it. But there's a difference between saying, well, my audience might know that and saying my audience is going to 
think of that and they're going to I don't even I don't even have to mention it in this context they're going to use it and it's going to make me look so cool that's not how fabricators and forgers and literary authors generally work they want their stories generally to be uh, their fictional stories to be coherent and to have this kind of uh, fitting together one thing that an older author said was a to serve the ends of forgery a a fictionalization must be such as to strike the reader otherwise it fails of its purpose that was a an author named i believe hausen in the 19th century i i don't think there would be any reason for him to leave it to chance uh so the casualness of these coincidences but i would say in context so what we're doing we're doing an inference to the best explanation here inferences to the best explanation are probabilistic they're not going to be absolute proofs but we, we find this kind of accidental interlocking where one person just mentions something and somebody else just mentions something else and they fit together casually in truthful testimony. So I would say that truthful testimony is a much, much better explanation than John's being hyper subtle in this way and just sort of hoping that people, because they know where Philip is from or they've heard where the feeding of the 5,000, will put all those three facts together uh, in one place and go, wow, just doesn't John look cool and realistic? I think that's psychologically implausible as a picture of the author. Okay, and I, I just don't, I don't buy that that's necessarily John's intent. I mean, it could be that Philip is a name that's very common to a particular region, and it would be obvious to assume that he's from that region. I mean, I'm, I live in New Jersey. I'm not from New Jersey, but even now, there, there, there are names that I would associate uh, with uh, New Jersey and New, the New York area that I would not associate with uh, the, the Deep South where I grew up. And so it's it's... I don't. I don't even think it's a matter of you trying to look cool to your obvious uh, audience. They're just things that are maybe obvious to a particular writer who's who's well traveled and, and pretty knowledgeable. And of course, they would uh, put that there. I don't think we have any evidence. I mean, Bethsaida isn't that far from Capernaum or the uh, other events now, now Palestine. We definitely have evidence that the gospel authors are using the names in uh, in ways that are realistic to the time period. And that's a fascinating study. Peter J. Williams has written about that and confirms, I think, in itself the historicity of the Gospels. But uh, as far as Bethsaida, this little town on that side of the Sea of Galilee, which is not very big, versus somewhere else, Philip is a, uh, it's a Greek name, which may be why the Greeks approach uh, Philip in John 6. Excuse me, I misspoke, John 12. Uh, the Greeks approach Philip, but there wasn't any particular reason to expect someone, you know, with a Greek name to be from the region of Bethsaida. And in fact, uh, Peter uh, is is from there and he doesn't have a Greek name. So that I don't think is, is plausible. I think what you'd have to have would be this kind of hyper subtle fabrication. And then I think perhaps you and I are in agreement that that itself is not a terribly plausible uh, reason. So I think we, we do see the casualness of these mentions as a positive quality that the these facts have and a positive quality that these narratives have and that then requires explanation why such casually mentioned things fit together in the way that they do. Well, I, I don't disagree that it's, you know, in a Bayesian sense, it's positive evidence. But in an absolute sense, it is not in and of itself convincing. It's, it's one factor. 
uh, I well, don't... and that's why it's a cumulative case, and I emphasize that a lot in Hidden in Plain View. This is a cumulative case of undesigned coincidences, and then undesigned coincidences themselves are part of a larger cumulative case of different kinds of evidence for the history of City of the Gospel. So we get sort of got cumulative cases within cumulative cases, as it were, which is kind of cool. That's uh, part of the wealth of evidence that we have for the historicity of the Gospels, and that's why I give so many examples in the book as well. Yes. You might, I just sort of throw in a, as part of this quite question 11, what, what are some of the other kinds of evidences that you, you think support the historicity of the Gospels? So that's really cool, and I can only give a few examples here. Um, one type of evidence that I think I've mentioned earlier is what my husband Tim calls incidental confirmations. So these are places where the authors get these tiny little things right in this very complex society at the time, and a society, moreover, that was destroyed uh, at the destruction of Jerusalem. So just for example, uh, Luke refers to the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And this has even been used to argue that Luke is making a mistake because there couldn't be two high priests at the same time. But we find independently confirmed in other history that uh, Annas had been the high priest and that the Romans set him aside for Caiaphas. Maybe Caiaphas was considered more pro-Roman or something. And so then the people would have still thought of his father-in-law, Annas, and they, so they were related as being the high priest. And so they would have, uh, they apparently got along pretty well together. So that little reference to that high priesthood, um, we've got a ton of these, these little social references, like a denarius was a day's wage or that kind of thing that fit so beautifully, or the two drachma tax for the temple, um, little things. And we have to remember, again, trying not to be anachronistic. They did not have Encyclopedia Britannica. They did not have Google. It would have been extremely difficult for someone who did not live at the time to, to research these. So these definitely shows uh, uh, that the authors or their human sources were very knowledgeable about that Palestinian context. So that's, that's external evidence. Another thing is um, what I call um, unexplained allusions. The authors just say these things. They have absolutely no literary function, and they may even interrupt the narrative so that it's not good literary style, I would say. So, for example, in John 2, just out of the blue, it says, Jesus and his mother and his brothers and his disciples went down uh, to Capernaum and stayed there a few days. Full stop. And then, like, the next thing is, uh, and it was the time of the Passover, blah, blah, blah. It's, it just doesn't do anything. And their narrative is very interrupted. It's the kind of thing you would, you would polish out if you were writing a literary artifact. But in contrast, again, as I say, it's a positive quality that we do find in oral history. If you just get somebody to talk about the, his experiences in some uh, war or some historical event, people do just throw these things in. And that was the year that my cousin uh, got flu or whatever. You know, they'll just throw stuff in like that. And so I think that those unexplained allusions really do bespeak a historical and testimonial project rather than a uh, literary project. Um, so I would I would say those are two things. There are also these really vivid details that I think speak of the eyewitness uh, nature, and I'll just give one of those. In John 21, when they uh, see Jesus at the Sea of Galilee after he's risen from the dead, the beloved disciple, they're out in the boat, and he says, it's the Lord, and Peter jumps in and he swims to shore. Um, 
well, that's that's not so surprising, although it, it does show the character of Peter, which is very consistent across all the Gospels. That's another kind of evidence. Um, but it specifically says in John 21, he put on his coat before he jumped into the, the water. Now, that's really weird. If you're making up this story, when people are about to jump into the water and swim, they don't usually put on their coats. They would usually take off their garment. And John says he was stripped for work. So evidently he doesn't want to appear before Jesus in the nude or very close to in the nude. So when he's convinced it's the Lord, he puts on his, his some kind of robe or something and jumps in. And he's a fisherman. He's probably swam before he could walk so he can swim. It's not really a problem. But it's this very odd detail kind of comes out of nowhere that he put on his coat it's very vivid it allows you to see the scene and i think that kind of detail is also a kind of internal evidence for the eyewitness nature of the documents so let me let me just throw in my other uh, objection here and i i would i was i appreciate these these illusions that you're making but to me that they're just markers of good writing um and i I, once again, I, I recognize that I'm not this good of a writer, so I don't want to present myself as, yeah, I write this kind of stuff every day. I do not. Um, in fact, I probably could not. But that's a, that, that just means that my, my skill level could use improvement, not that these things are impossible. I've read great literature uh, that, that seems so real. Uh, and I, I think that there this it feels a little like special pleading and so in in that same vein the other reason that i find it not convincing is it feels like uh you're celebrating the hits and ignoring the misses so yes there may be in fact some uh undesigned coincidences uh that speak to uh the the truth of some historical moment uh that happened with an interview or maybe uh, something that people were talking about and that that lived on over time for whatever reason. This one weird detail uh, survived, whereas others didn't. So I I get that, and I I don't believe that the Gospels are bereft of true things. So the problem is the Gospels also have things that, you know, a skeptic might say are undesigned inconsistencies. And I don't think that the undesigned coincidences that you bring up do anything to wash away the the parts that are inconsistent, and uh, it, at least from my uh, view, are contradictory. And so you you still have um, a document that you know has has some truths here and some things that are uh, not not so true, some accuracies and some inaccuracies. It doesn't really do anything to help me believe the uh, more exotic claims of the document. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot there to answer. Um, I definitely don't dodge questions of contradictions. And as I said earlier, I do believe that the vast majority of apparent discrepancies can be harmonized. And in fact, that the uh, even the appearance of discrepancy argues for the independence of the documents, which is a cool thing in and of itself. and then we get we start to get this sense as we do responsible historical harmonization. And then we also look at these other marks of historicity. We get this sense of the kind of authors these are and the kind of documents they are. And I call that kind, I call that reportage or memoir, as I said earlier. That is a, a huge boost, you know, for 
uh, for Christianity. Um, and I, I would also say as far as good writing, I think I've just given a couple examples that uh, particularly the one about coming down from uh, to Capernaum, that it would actually be bad writing if it were um, if, if it were fiction. The other thing is we should definitely recognize that super realistic historical fiction is a later development and we just don't you know c.s lewis said that it would be without predecessors and without pre uh followers you know just like out of the blue and so i think that's an important historical consideration and the third is when i talked about the incidental confirmations they get hard things right you've got to have people who actually live at the time or they just literally wouldn't know these things it's not like now when if you want to write a historical novel you have ample resources for researching all the you know what does a fisherman in wales get paid or something you know you, you can do that uh you could that was just very hard at the time so at a minimum that argues for a very uh deep closeness and integration with the time period. Peter Williams has also pointed out about the name statistics that even when you do live at a time period, you're sometimes surprised, gee, I didn't know Melissa was such a popular name. You know, we, we, we wouldn't even necessarily guess correctly. And the and yet the Gospels put in these names at the statistical uh, frequencies that we can actually confirm from like ossuaries and that kind of thing and they do it in this very natural fashion which is far more the mark of somebody who's writing about you know real people who really had those names but i also want to address what you said about removing doubt about miracle claims um and that's an interesting point. So I, I want to talk here just as a last thing about the what i call the totality of the evidence um when when we look at these evidences for the reliability of the Gospels, what I take those to do in Christianity, here's the function I see those as playing. Narrow down on the, on the resurrection, suppose we believed that those accounts came from people who were in a position to know what they were saying, whether it was true or not. And suppose that those accounts told us what those witnesses did in fact claim. So, for example, that they ate with Jesus was not something that someone added, you know, 30 years later, and then they didn't even claim to have eaten with Jesus. No, they actually claimed that this is an, a faithful representation of what those original guys claimed. And then let's suppose that Acts is uh, historically reliable. Now we get the picture in those early chapters of Acts of what they were up against and the danger that they were in and the, all the motives they had for keeping quiet and not attesting. You put all that together, and I think it creates what I call a trilemma for the disciples, that either they were um, lying for you know either they were lying or they were um deceived or hallucinating in some ways or they were telling the truth and then what these details do is they tend to really push back against those other two options that lying for example would have been very demotivated um and then these details it's like really you know 12 or 13 of you guys or more all sit around and talk with these guys what kind of hallucination do we we have of that kind we we don't not these kinds of lengthy uh polymodal things with multiple people all claiming to have eaten with the same person they'd have to be really crazy in some sort of unprecedented way so this enables us to 
whittle away at those alternatives to their telling the truth. Once we have these are close to the facts documents and they're telling uh, what the witnesses really claimed and what they were in fact willing to take on great danger for. Now, once you're convinced, if one becomes convinced that miracles uh, can really happen, and what you know, a lot of things might play into this natural theology, the argument for the resurrection, etc. Then you you have to set aside that bias against the miraculous. And so then, when you have other miracle stories in the Gospels, be it the raising of uh, Jairus' daughter or whatever, even if we don't claim to have some specific undesigned coincidence for that particular miracle, you have reason to think these authors are telling what they themselves have good reason to think is true, you've got that. And then you've tried to shed your bias against the miraculous per se, which makes you more open to the possibility that that's a true story. So there's this these indirect routes by which the reliability confirms the historicity of, uh, as you said, the stranger stories or the, the more miraculous stories, but it's not the most direct route that you might think it is like, well, this is just a randomly selected uh, statement taken from the document. So it's probably true. It's not quite that crude. It is a matter of a kind of a, a, a net of, of inferences where you put all of this evidence together, including the evidence specifically for the resurrection, which is attested in where they were, you know, attesting it in such a very direct way. So that would be my answer to that part of your concern. As I um, ask each of my guests, and you can answer honestly, um, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you back um, another time. We're uh, looking at fall and winter for guests to return. If, if that's something that you would find interesting, there's there's sure. more to discuss than, yeah, than where we went today. <laughs> and I think you guys arranged it really well where you got me the questions well in advance. We got, you know... Like Skype always has to reinstall on my f computer for some reason. I don't know why. When I'm off Skype for a while, it thinks it isn't installed. So, you know, like that sound check worked out really well. You guys really have your act together there. So um, that helped and that made it. That will, that will uh, come as a great shock to our listeners. <laughs> 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 but I, th I think, you know, that, that made it go really smoothly. And you asked me well in advance, gave me lots of time to prepare. So, yeah, I would be happy to be on again. Just so our audience knows, we were supposed to have a guest next week that uh, we are not going to have. And so that means that Dale and I, uh, correct me if I'm misspeaking, Dale, Dale and I are going to have a chance to finish off uh, our series <laughs> that has been uh, long postponed. Is that correct, uh, Dale? Uh, yeah, sure. So, yeah. so that you're talking about part six of yes. why you don't trust the bible or something part that... six this is this is uh, the series from the skeptic view uh lydia why i don't care what the bible says and why you shouldn't either and so uh with that said uh we'll see you all next week and uh, goodbye everybody thank you all right. take care everyone